well, we don't have the music coming up. I don't know why. It's supposed to be coming up. Well, that's very interesting. Well, I guess we won't be playing Fleetwood Mac this morning. This is uh, Hello and welcome to the Chambers Street Theater. I'm Ruth Chambers, and here we are on KDRT Low Power, High Impact, a 95.7 FM. And, of course, uh, we do the best we can with the equipment we have, and uh, we'll probably be having a little fundraiser to try to get uh, this <clears throat> the records not playing uh, thing solved. <laughs> well, I wanted to play this morning, uh, the, the thing that wouldn't play, was Fleetwood Mac. I've always liked them, and uh, I sure would like to share them with you. Um, let's see, what can I say? There w I was trying to find a Ram song, R-A-M, uh, because uh, we're going to be reading a, a story about a ram, and uh, that's the animal. And I, I, I didn't find a ram song. And so then I found this uh, song called Lies, Little Lies. And uh, it was Fleetwood Mac. Because um, in the story about the ram, uh, Blaine, who's telling the story, the character in the story, he's telling the truth as he knows it as a character. But it's Mark Twain writing the story, and he has a tendency to stretch things a little bit, so I thought Lies might be kind of a fun song to play. And besides, I like Fleetwood Mac, and I'm sure you do too. Anyway, all these people are just wonderful, and um, I think we should just get started. We'll just pretend that you heard the song by Fleetwood Mac, and now we're going to start with Mark Twain's Roughing It. And this is, uh, oh, let's see, almost uh, two-thirds of the way through Roughing It. It's probably my favorite book by Mark Twain, although I'm very fond of Huckleberry Finn. But the thing about Roughing It that's so wonderful is Mark Twain was actually there on the ground, using his own words, uh, during the gold rush in Nevada, which was Silver Rush, and then, of course, in California, the gold rush. We're talking about 1849, 1860. He was there around the 1860 and into the 70s. And, um, well, he has this story. <laughs> and let's get to it. Okay, let's see. I'll put my bookmark down. We don't have any music. That's too bad. I would have liked that. Well, here we go. And this is the story of the ram. The story of the old ram, I'm sorry, the old ram. <clears throat> Every now and then in these days, the boys used to tell me I ought to get one Jim Blaine to tell me the stirring story of his grandfather's old ram. But they always added that I must not mention the matter unless Jim was drunk at the time, just comfortably and sociably drunk. That kept this up, well, until my curiosity was on the rack to hear the story. Uh, I got to haunting Blaine, but it was of no use. The boys always found fault with his condition. He was often moderately, but never satisfactorily drunk. I never watched a man's condition with such absorbing interest, such anxious solicitude. I never so pined to see a man uncompromisingly drunk before. <laughs> At last, 
One evening, I hurried to his cabin, for I learned that this time his situation was such that even the most fastidious could find no fault with it. He was tranquilly, serenely, systematically drunk. Not a hiccup to mar his voice, not a cloud upon his brain thick enough to obscure his memory. <laughs> and as I entered, he was sitting upon an empty powder keg with a clay pipe in one hand and the other raised to command silence. His face was round, red, and very serious. His throat was bare and his hair tumbled. In general appearance and costume, he was a stalwart miner of the period. On the pine table stood a candle, and its dim light revealed the boys sitting there, here and there, on bunks, candle boxes, powder kegs, etc. They said, Shh, don't speak. He's going to commence. I found a seat at once, and Blaine said, I don't reckon them times will ever come again. There never was a more bullier old ram than what he was. Grandfather fetched him from Illinois, got him of a man by the name of Yates, uh, Bill Yates. Maybe you might have heard of him. His father was a deacon, a uh, Baptist. And he was a rustler, too. A man had to get up rather early to get the start of old thankful Yates. It was him that put the Greens up to joining teams with my grandfather when he moved west. Seth Green was probably the pick of the flock. He married a Wilkerson, Sarah Wilkerson. Good creature she was. One of the likeliest heifers that was ever raised in old Stoddard. Everybody said, well, everybody said that knowed her. She could heft a barrel of flour as easy as I can flirt a flapjack. And spin? Don't mention it. Independent? Humph! Well, Cy Hawkins came a browsing round her. She let him know that for all his tin, he couldn't trot and harness alongside of her. You see, Sly Hawkins, what? No? It wasn't Sly Hawkins after all. It was a galoot by the name of Filkins. I disremember his first name, but he was a stump. Come into prayer meeting drunk one night, hooraying for Nixon because he thought it was a primary. And old Deacon Ferguson up and scooted him through the window and he lit on old Miss Jefferson's head. Poor old Fully. Oh, hell, she was as good. Oh, well, she's a good old soul. Had a glass eye and used to lend it to old Miss Wagner that hadn't any to receive company in. It weren't big enough, and when Miss Wagner weren't noticing, it would get twisted round in the socket and look up, maybe, or out to one side and every which way, while t'other was looking as straight ahead as a spyglass. Grown people didn't mind it, but it most always made the children cry. It was so sort of scary. <laughs> she tried packing it in raw cotton, but it wouldn't work somehow. The cotton would get loose and stick out and look so kind of awful that the children couldn't stand it no way. 
she was always dropping it out and turning up her old dead light on the company empty and making them uncomfortable because she never could tell when it hopped out being blind on that side, you see. So somebody would have to hunch her and say, Your gay man, I, has uh, uh, fetched loose, Miss Wagner, dear. And then all of them would have to sit and wait till she jammed it in again. Wrong side before as a general thing, and green as a bird's egg. <laughs> but being wrong side before weren't much different anyway because her own eye was sky blue and the glass one was yeller on the front side. So whichever way she turned it, it didn't match nohow. Old Miss Wagner was considerable on the borrow, she was. When she had a quilting or a, a Dorcas society at her house, she generally borrowed Miss Higgins' wooden leg to stump around on. It was considerable shorter than her other pin, but much she minded that. <laughs> she said she couldn't abide crutches when she had company because they were so slow. Uh, said when she had company and things had to be done, she wanted to get up. She was as bald as a jug, <laughs> and so she used to borrow Miss Jos. Well, it's Jacobs, Miss Jacobs' wig. Miss Jacobs was the coffin peddler's wife, a ratty old bustard he was, that used to go roosting around where people was sick, waiting for them, and there's. Uh, that old uh, Rip would sit all day in the shade on a coffin that he judged would fit the candidate. And if it was a slow customer and kind of uncertain, he'd fetch his rations and a blanket along and sleep in the coffin nights. He was anchored out that way in frosty weather for about three weeks once before old Robin's place waiting for him, and after that, for as much as two years, Jacobs was not on speaking terms with the old man on account of his disappointing him. He got one of his feet froze and lost money, too, because old Robbins took a favorite turn, well, it was a favorable turn, and got well. The next time Robbins got sick, Jacobs tried to make up with him and varnished up the same old coffin and fetched it along, but old Robbins was too many for him, and he had him in, and appeared to be powerful weak. He bought the coffin for $10, and Jacobs was to pay it back, and 25 more besides if Robbins didn't like the coffin after he tried it. And then Robbins died, <laughs> and at the funeral... He bursted off the lid and riz up in his shroud and told the parson to let up on the performances <laughs> because he could not stand such a coffin as that. You see, he had been in a trance once before when he was young, and he took the chances of another, calculating that if he made the trip, it was money in his pocket, and if he missed fire, he couldn't lose a cent. And by George, he sued Jacobs for the rhino and got judgment. And he set up the coffin in his back parlor and said he'd allowed to take his time now. It was always an aggravation to Jacobs the way that miserable old thing acted. <laughs> he moved back to Indiana pretty soon and went to Wellsville. 
Wellsville was the place the uh, Hagendorns was from. Mighty fine family, old Maryland stock. Old Squire Hagendorn could carry around more mixed liquor and cuss better than most any man I ever see. His second wife was the Witter Billings. Uh, she was uh, Becky Martin's, well... She was Becky Martin. Her dam was Deacon Dunlap's first wife. Her oldest child, Maria, married a missionary and died in grace. Ed up by the savages. They ate him, too, poor feller. Biled him. It weren't the custom, so they say, but they explained to friends of his that went down there to bring away his things that they'd tried missionaries every other way and never could get any good out of them. And so it annoyed all his relations to find out that that man's life was fooled away just out of a darned experiment, so to speak. But mind you, there ain't anything ever really lost. Everything that people can't understand and don't see the reason of does good if you only hold on and give it a fair shake. Providence don't fire no blank cartridges, boys. That there missionary substance, unbeknownst to himself, actually converted every last one of them heathens that took a chance at the barbecue. Nothing ever fetched them but that. Don't tell me it was an accident that he was biled. There ain't no such thing as an accident. When my Uncle Lem was leaning up against a sea-folding, well, a scaffolding thing once, sick or drunk or something, an Irishman had a hod full of bricks, fell on him out of a third story and broke the old man's back in two places. Uh, people said it was an accident. Much accident there was about that. He didn't know what he was there for, but he was there for a good object. If he hadn't been there, the Irishman would have been killed. Nobody can ever make me believe anything different from that. Uncle Lem's dog was there. Why didn't the Irishman fall on the dog? Because the dog would have seen him a-coming and stood from under. That's the reason the dog weren't appointed. A dog can't be depended on to carry out a special providence. Mark my words, it was a put-up thing. Accidents don't happen, boys. Uncle Lem's dog, I wish you could have seen that dog. He was a regular shepherd. Or rather, he was uh, part bull and part shepherd. Splendid animal. Belonged to Parson Hager before Uncle Lem got him. Parson Hager belonged to the Western Reserve Hagers, prime family. His mother was a Watson. One of his sisters married a Wheeler. They settled in Morgan County, and he got nipped by the machinery in a carpet factory and went through in less than a quarter of a minute. His widder bought the piece of carpet that had his remains woven in, and people come a hundred mile to tend the funeral. There was fourteen yards in the piece. She wouldn't let them roll him up, but planted him just so, full length. The church was middling small where they uh, preached the funeral, and they had to let one end of the coffin stick out the window. They didn't bury him, they planted one end and let him stand up same as a monument. 
and they nailed a sign on it and put uh, uh, put, uh, put on uh, put, put on it. Uh, sacred to the memory of 14 yards of three-ply carpet containing all that was mortal of William Wheeler. Jim Blaine had been growing gradually drowsy and drowsier. His head nodded once, twice, dropped peacefully upon his breast, and he fell tranquilly asleep. The tears were running down the boy's cheeks. They were suffocating with suppressed laughter and had been from the start, though I never noticed it. I perceived that I was sold. <laughs> I learned then that Jim Blaine's peculiarity was that whenever he reached a certain stage of intoxication, no human power could keep him from setting out with impressive unction to tell about a wonderful adventure which he had once had with his grandfather's old ram. And the mention of the ram in the first sentence was as far as any man had ever heard him get concerning it. He always meandered off interminably from one thing to another till his whiskey got the best of him and he fell asleep. What the thing was that happened to him and his grandfather's old ram is a dark mystery to this day, for nobody has ever yet found out. And, of course, that's Mark Twain from Roughing It, and uh, that's the chapter about the old ram. And I wish I had my, my lion song, because obviously that was all stretched out. <laughs> <laughs> Mark Twain called that himself. He'd say he'd write a story and then he'd stretch it a little. <laughs> well, the words in this story uh, were printed in an accent uh, and pronounced, well, I pronounced the words as written. You probably heard the word biled, B-I-L-E-D. That's for boiled, B-O-I-L-E-D. Uh, I didn't explain it before because I think biled, sort of explains itself because it was mentioned several times. I try to uh, recreate uh, a long-gone way of speaking using Mark Twain's phonetically spelled words to lead the way, and I try to just keep it sort of folksy and sort of Mark Twainish. Uh, I do the best I can. And uh, I, I just particularly like this story because it's so silly. <laughs> it's just delightfully silly. Well, let's see. What else have we got here? Well, the Chamber Street Theater can be heard live on Thursday, 11 a.m., and repeats Friday, 2.30 p.m., Saturday, 11.30 p.m., moving into the night. And, of course, we always have... A little PSA we want to say about somebody or something. And let's see. We're going to get to that in a minute. I'm going to uh, take out the CD that wouldn't play for some reason. I don't know why Fleetwood Mac wouldn't play. It's been playing for years. Maybe that's the problem. <laughs> it's probably been playing for years. <laughs> okay. Well, let's see. I've got to get some numbers here. Uh, let's, uh, 
Uh, yep. Let's see. I'm pressing in numbers here on our machine. Uh, well, we're all set for later in the show, and hopefully uh, this CD will play. Let's cross our fingers. Okay, so that's for later. Well, curious about community radio? Interested in getting involved in KDRT? You're in luck because you're invited to our next orientation uh, where we can uh, answer your questions about broadcast and behind-the-scenes volunteer opportunities and internships. To find the date and RSVP for our next orientation, visit davismedia.org and click on the Get Involved tablet. Well, hope to see you soon, because <laughs> we'll be here. We'll be here. Well, you know, we have some wonderful programs, and one that makes me laugh out loud, and I do like to share with you, is Divine Intervention. This is funny. I find myself just laughing. Divine Intervention strikes the KDRT airwaves with an unholy assortment of ambrosial audio, including much new music in the spirit of alternate rock, pop, indie and punk, some roots and randomness and vinyl vespers featuring the best of the worst from the record store bargain bins. And that's one of the funniest parts, the vinyl vespers. Join hostess Jess Gades live Mondays 7.30, well, 7 to 9 p.m. on KDRT. And for replay times, visit kdrt.org and click the schedule tab. That's Mondays Live, 7 to 9 p.m., and that's on KDRT. That's right here. All right. Well, we got those done, and I'm pleased that we did. And let's see what I've got here. We've got a lot of things going on. I do like to read Roughing It uh, because, as I mentioned before, Mark Twain said it himself, he was on the ground. He was there during that gold rush. And if it wasn't for Mark Twain, we wouldn't know about some of the things that he talks about in Roughing It. And it's just a shame when some of these good stories get lost. And we want to thank Mark Twain for writing all down in this book. It has a paperback by Signet Classics. That's the one I've got. And it's got a nice introduction by Elizabeth Frank who uh, goes on a bit about Mark Twain, and that's good because um, you can always learn just a little more about Mark Twain. He's just wonderful. Speaking of Mark Twain in general, I was given a mug that has Mark Twain on it and some of his quotes, and I, I want to thank uh, uh, Stephen Streeter for that nice gift, and I did write him a nice little thank you card, uh, and on that card, I, I put one of the pictures of my rescued cats. I was rescuing cats. You know, the strangest thing. <laughs> and, well, I'm going to tell the story anyway. I live in a mobile home um, in a, a mobile park. And when people move, they take their dogs, but very often they don't take their cats. And so we'll have these uh, domestic cats out there uh, trying to catch mice or a leaf or whatever. <laughs> lizards, too. They eat the lizards. Um, and 
and they become half feral. So by the time I find them, they're, they're pretty much uh, a mixed bag of domestic and feral, and I try to save their lives. And we've saved uh, six so far, and we got them altered because that's part of the problem, having an unneutered, half feral, half domestic cat wandering around. Uh, they go into heat, obviously, and then they get pregnant, and they bring some more cats into the world, and they're all just uh, wandering about and uh, getting in trouble and maybe even getting hurt, and that's not right. Uh, it's just not right. And so I started, uh, uh, well, rescuing them, and I built little old chairs with covers for them to sit on, and I'd feed them, and... Uh, then pretty soon they got some new rules for the park. The feral outside cats can't be fed is the rule. But inside cats that are pets that don't go outside, aren't allowed outside, uh, can be fed, and they don't have to be neutered. Now the problem with, um, well, we just get too many cats is the problem. Even the indoor cats uh, can, you know, cats can get out and things can happen. I mean, it's nature. It's the way it was intended, but not in such quantity. Uh, and it's just unfortunate. Right now I've got a, a cat inside my house that is a half feral, half domestic cat. And she's taken over my rocker chair <laughs> in the morning. I have my coffee and sit in the rocking chair and comb my hair, and the cat's taken over my chair. <laughs> but that's all right. That's okay. She can have that. Well, she's a long-haired cat, and of course, I have allergies. So um, I'm taking an allergy pill and doing what I can, and she's, uh, she's got allergies herself, and I put a, a collar on her, and it turned all scabby around her neck and I realized then that she was allergic to that collar and as soon as I took it off within a day most of that was cleared up so uh, she's there with her allergies <laughs> and of course now I'm there with my allergies and we're just doing an allergy house and uh, you know I clean up as best I can I got vacuum and a, a brush and a pickup thing I Got a cat box for her. I'm going to get her a scratching post. I don't know. This having a cat inside the house, it's just a new thing for me. <clears throat> I had cats a long time ago. I had dogs. I had cockatiels and goldfish. Uh, I'm just an animal person. I like animals. They're the nicest people. Well, that's our show for today. And uh, here we're going to see if we can play this CD. Let's see what comes up. Oh, please play. Okay, well, we're not going to have any closing music. All right. Well, I'll just hum a tune. Bye-bye for now. We'll see you soon. Uh, next week, we'll have another live show. But right now, it's bye-bye. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. <laughs>